Welcome to Cancer Conference Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with four clinical investigators to discuss select key papers from the American Society of Hematology meetings in Atlanta in December. And to begin, I met with Dr. Bruce Chesson to review papers in non-Hodgkin lymphoma and CLL, and he began by commenting on a study looking at the so-called R-squared regimen of rituximab and lenalidomide in indolent lymphoma. I think those of us who went to ASH realize that the world is changing. The goal of a number of us over the years has been getting away from chemotherapy towards more targeted agents and, you know, they just weren't available. And I think that now, if you can take one message away from the ASH meetings is that the day has come. And I think this was a pivotal ASH meeting. I think in the future, it's going to be very different than it has been in the past because of novel targeted therapies. And one of these was presented by my former fellow, Nathan Fowler, now at MD Anderson. And what he did is he updated what he says is the final results of a phase two study that he conducted of the combination of rituximab and the imid lenalidomide. They studied about 110 patients. They wanted to get about half follicular because the early results were very promising. So actually they expanded the study. And... These were untreated patients with small lymphocytic lymphoma. There were 30 of them, marginal zone 27, and there were 46 patients with follicular lymphoma. And as you know, the rituximab is intravenously on day one of each 28-day cycle, and the lenalidomide was taken day one through 21 out of 28. And the results were astounding. What they found was the overall response rate for all patients was 90%, including two-thirds of the patients achieving a complete remission. Many of these complete on the basis of PET scan. But was even most exciting were the results in follicular lymphoma. The overall response rate, 98%, with 87% complete remissions. And these appear to be somewhat durable. In fact, the estimated two-year progression-free survival was over 80% for all patients and almost 90% for follicular. And where this is headed is the challenge. And that is they're taking this regimen, so-called R-squared, and going head-to-head with chemotherapy rituximab, chemoimmunotherapy, in what's called the relevance trial. Physicians can pick either R-CHOP, R-CVP, or our bendamustine, and it's going to be a one-to-one randomization. It's an international study. And this trial has the potential to change how we approach patients with follicular lymphoma. So if I were to say to you, just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, these are untreated patients, and we know that rituximab by itself is very active. It's a phase two study. I mean, how do we really know that it's that much better than, for example, R alone? Well, obviously we don't, but R alone in the best of papers is 50 to 75% response rate, and they last a median of around 18 months. Here we're into the mid to high 90s, and they're lasting, appear to be lasting longer, and that's why they're doing the randomized study to see how it really stacks up in the real world. What about the side effects and tolerability of this regimen? And 
Could you see it not only competing with R chemo, but again, competing with R alone? I think I'm seeing more R alone that's being used nowadays, you know, sort of gradually been increasing as opposed to watchful waiting, although that's still utilized. How much, you know, problems does it add to bring in lenalidomide on top of it? Well, lenalidomide is a drug that's not without its adverse effects. In general, you got to take an aspirin because of the risks of thrombosis, but the risk is really small even without it, single digits. There are patients who develop a rash, there are patients who develop fatigue, and most prominently, some cytopenias. But the regimen was well tolerated in this study, and you know it worked in patients with all flippy grades of follicular lymphoma. The data with rituximab their historical control data compared with this, they don't seem to stack up, but again, it is what it is. It's a phase two study, but I should mention that in CALGB, or now called Alliance, we actually started this trial before the current one. We started the same combination, and our study is undergoing analysis, and our response rate's over 90% with over 60% complete remissions as well, with the R-squared combination. So it is a reproducible finding. And we'll just have to see how it stacks up to chemotherapy. And then we'll look at subsets and see if it's necessary in one subset or another to actually give cytotoxic treatment or if we can do like we've been trying to do, and that's just get rid of the anthracyclines and let's get rid of the vinca alkaloids and the steroids and move on to more targeted approaches. What do we know about the R-squared regimen in patients with progressive disease on rituximab? Well, funny you should ask, because at the ASCO meeting, the CALGB data were presented for our study 50401 by John Leonard, and we had attempted to do a three-arm study, R alone, LEN alone, and R-squared. And we couldn't accrue at all to that study until we dropped the R alone arm. And then the study accrued very nicely, and what we found was the combination of lenalidomide rituximab, so-called R-squared, was significantly better with regard to overall response rate and progression-free survival compared with lenalidomide alone. Unfortunately, we couldn't do the third arm of rituximab alone because people in the group didn't feel comfortable putting patients on that particular arm. So we do know that that combination has about a 70% response rate in relapsed patients. These are relapsed, not refractory patients. So it's an active regimen in that context also. What do we know, again, about patients who actually have progressive disease on rituximab? You know, essentially, what happens if you add lenalidomide and keep the rituximab going? I don't think we know that. I haven't seen any data in patients who fail rituximab and are continued on the drug. It's not something we would tend to do, even adding lenalidomide at that point. It's a good scientific question to see whether adding lenalidomide will enhance the efficacy. There actually was a study that I don't recall completely in which they did something like that, and it appeared as if the lenalidomide did make the patients less refractory to rituximab, made them a little more sensitive to rituximab. I haven't seen that published in anything but an abstract at this point in time, and that was about a year ago. So there is preclinical rationale for combining the two. They enhance apoptosis, but 
whatever it does, these results are striking and clearly warrant further pursuit. Let's talk a little bit about Abstract 793, a phase two study of CT011, a humanized anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody, something we saw some really interesting stuff at at ASCO in solid tumors. Mm -hmm. Well, again, from the MD Anderson group, they took the observation that there are molecules that inhibit the activity of cytotoxic T cells, which are enhanced in patients with cancer. So one of the mechanisms by which the disease can grow out of control is that these toxic cells, these cytotoxic cells, are, are ineffective. And there are molecules, such as PD-1, which cause this process to occur. So they looked at this anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody, and they administered it to 30 patients who were rituximab relapsed, not refractory, which is a critical thing to throw in here. They'd all received prior rituximab, but they had relapsed, and they were not resistant. And they received a bunch of other things, but the median number of prior therapies was one. So it's not a heavily treated patient population, and it's only rituximab relapsed. But most of the patients had some evidence of clinical activity. About 85% had some shrinkage of tumor. The overall response rate was about 66%, which they felt was better than historical controls with rituximab alone. This is a combination of this anti-PD-1 and rituximab that they were presenting. And the median progression-free survival was a bit over a year and a half. So it is interesting, but I sure would have preferred knowing how it worked in rituximab refractory patients, not just relapse patients, because that would give us a better idea of whether there is synergy between these two compounds. But again, something worth pursuing. Pitalizumab is the name of this. Try to remember that one. And clearly is worth pursuing in patients with more resistant disease and perhaps in other combinations based on some scientific rationale. It's cool. It's another example of better living through molecular genetics and biology. How about abstract 191? We've been seeing some really interesting stuff and talking about ASH 2012 in terms of small molecules. And this one used to be called Cal 101. Now it's Idelalisib. How about this phase one study that was presented at ASH? Well, idelalisib, as you know, is the PI3 kinase delta isoform sort of specific inhibitor. It's an oral pill, and it has, in phase one trials, been very interesting, being very active in a variety of histologies, mostly the indolent histologies in mantle cell, not so much large cell, and in CLL as a single drug. And it was well-tolerated, except for maybe some transaminitis. But here... They took the next step, and that was to look at the drug alone, combine it with rituximab, bendamustine, or a combination of the two in a phase one, therefore mostly looking at the tolerability, and all three combinations were tolerable, and looking at the activity of these regimens. They had 50, 60 patients here, and half of them had bulky disease. They had a median of around three prior regimens, 
depending on the regimen, how many had what was considered refractory disease. But the results were of interest. Uh, the response rates were much higher than one would have expected with the drug alone. They had CRs, CRUs, and PRs, mostly PRs, in the 80% range, maybe a bit higher, with a one-year progression-free survival ranging from 75 to 88%, depending on the combination. It's really hard to tell from these small numbers of patients whether one of the doublets is better than another, but it sure would be nice if the rituximab and idelalisib was as good as the others, again, going to the goal of getting rid of chemotherapy. And another example of an exciting doublet of biological targeted agents, which are as good as, or at least almost as good as, combining the drug with chemotherapy. Are there phase three studies out there that are ongoing? Yeah, in CLL there is. We're participating in a study in particular of rituximab plus idelalisib versus rituximab plus placebo in relapsed refractory CLL patients who have a Sears score of at least six, meaning they've got a bunch of comorbidities. And if the patients are randomized to placebo and they progress, they're crossed over. If they're randomized to drug and they progress, they get a double dose of the drug. This is the registration trial. Interesting. There was a lot of attention to abstract 717, looking at chimeric antigen receptor T cells directed against CD19 in CLL and ALL. Can you explain what that was all about? Well, of all the new and novel therapies, I think this one has probably engendered the most interest, at least amongst patients of any I can recall, although now with the abrutinibs and the idelalisibs, that may change. Initially, there were three patients from this group presented, published in the New England Journal uh, a couple of years ago, 2011. You take out, you forese the patient's T cells, and you transfect them with a lentivirus so in such a way that the cells target specifically CD19. And since CD19 is only found on malignant and normal B cells, it becomes a very good target. And these are reinfused into patients. And in fact, whether it be ALL or CLL, they've seen complete remissions and partial remissions, some lasting a couple of years. The patients who respond experience a cytokine release syndrome, just like with any other cytokine-derived product. In the initial publication, it seemed pretty bad with patients developing serious clinical tumor lysis syndrome, needing dialysis. In this follow-up here, the therapy, can't really call it a drug because it's not, the therapy is much better tolerated. But again, we're still talking about 10 highly selected patients. The PRs were just a couple, three, four months long, but the CRs seem to last a year or two. We need longer follow-up, but it is a very exciting treatment but you have to look at it as it's not going to be something easy to export and readily available to the general population. It ain't going to play in Peoria in the near future, unlike what we've been talking about, the idelalisibs, and we'll probably get to ibrutinib, which are pills. So speaking of ibrutinib, there were a couple of papers there I wanted to ask you about, 189 and 187. 
looking at this interesting agent. Ibrutinib is another oral drug, used to be called PCI-32765. And this drug targets Bruton tyrosine kinase. This is just downstream from the B-cell receptor. And the drug has amazing results. I don't think there's anything you can say short of it, it's amazing. There were a couple of papers presented. John Bird presented the single agent data in patients with CLL who are either relapsed refractory or even patients who, or some of which were high-risk patients, or even, let's call them mature patients, 65 or older, I don't want to call those elderly. And the response rates were phenomenal. Overall, CR and PR in the untreated cohort was over 70%. For the refractory was 67, and for even for the high-risk, meaning 17P deletion patients, or those with a very short initial response to treatment, 50%. But what you have to realize is a couple of things. Number one, this is a pill. Take a pill a day. Number two, it is the best results we have ever seen in P53, 17P minus patients. And as you follow patients longer and longer on treatment, just as the case with the R-squared regimen we talked about earlier, the overall response rate goes up a little bit, but the complete response rate goes up and up and up. And what you find, which is a little confounding with this drug and idelalisib and CLL, is that they can induce a demargination of lymphocytes. So you can get this erroneous idea that the patient is progressing. I had a patient on idelalisib a couple of weeks ago. Her white count, lymphocyte count went up to 330,000. There was panic everywhere. I said, calm down, calm down. It's gonna be fine, and her count is now down 200, and it's gonna come down further. So just using lymphocyte count increase as a measure of progression is a very flawed way to look at this. You have to consider the lymph node size, spleen and liver size, and the other counts, which seem to get better. But what's striking about this drug in this study, if you look at the progression-free survival curves, there's over 80, close to 90% progression-free survival for the treatment-naive patients. And overall, it's about 70% for the relapsed refractory patients. Even those patients who have the 17P deletion, it's still in the range of 50, 60%. We've never seen anything like this in 17P deleted patients. But you're saying now, and at a year? Patients are out a year and a half, close to two years on study. And the curves are just going along very nicely. It's a pill you gotta keep taking every day. If you stop it, the disease tends to come back, and you start taking it again, and in the, the anecdotes, it appears the patients will respond again. So it's going to be changing CLL and changing the other indolent lymphoid malignancies into more of a chronic disease. I don't think these are curative therapies as we are doing them. It's possible they could be part of a curative regimen in the future, but you know, the patients take a pill a day, and they have no disease. The other paper by Berger looked at ibrutinib with rituximab, yeah. what was seen there. This is the MD Anderson group. The next logical step is to combine the brutinib with rituximab. And the results here were also rather 
interesting, small number of patients. It was 20 patients who had an early response assessment, and the overall response rate now is 85%. Again, relatively short follow-up, but astounding results. You're putting a pill together with rituximab, and almost 90% of patients respond to this. It's well-tolerated. You know, how can you do better? You've just got to find out. One of the issues is we really don't know which patients are going to respond, which aren't, and of the patients who do respond, which ones are going to relapse. So this is why it is incredibly important to do correlative studies, looking at microarray analyses, looking at effector cell number and function. So you can select the patients who are going to benefit from idelalisib, are going to benefit from abrutinib, who require rituximab or not. And that's where we're going. It's amazing. This drug, you take one pill a day. With idelalisib, it's two pills a day. I'm going to ask you about a paper with Dr. Farrell Holy looking at ofatumumab and lenalidomide in relapse CLL phase two trial. Yeah, Alessandra. She's a lovely lady from MD Anderson who's been very active in lenalidomide development. She did one of the first two trials. Her and Asher Chanankan, who was formerly at Roswell, did the two studies, and she presented some data here combining the imid with ofatumumab, which is the anti-CD20 that binds to a different epitope than does rituximab. Now, the combination was active. I don't know that it's any more active than we might have seen with lenalidomide and rituximab. It, it's a, trying not to be negative, which is hard for me. Ofatumumab has not exactly taken off as a monoclonal antibody, so I don't know how widely embraced this regimen will be. Any evidence that ofatumumab is more active specifically against CLL than rituximab? To the contrary. The only study that I've seen a fair amount of data on was another MD Anderson trial. And instead of FCR, they looked at FCO. And this was presented a couple of years ago at ASH. And in fact, I was chairing that session, and I made the comment, which was seconded by Conti Rai and thirded by Michael Hollick, the results actually seemed inferior to those that had been published with FR, FCR, or even BR. It's not clear that it is a world beater. Certainly in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it doesn't work in rituximab refractory patients. You know, where are these second, third generation anti-CD20s going to go? There are a dozen of them out there, and they're very, very expensive. And as rituximab comes off patent, and there are biosimilars and generics in development by a number of companies, it's going to be hard to compete unless they're clearly demonstrated to be more effective or they work when rituximab doesn't. You know, in terms of these other anti-CD20s, last year at ASH we saw some stuff on so-called GA101. What do you think about that? Did you see anything at ASH this year about that? I didn't see much at ASH this year. I'm the international PI, actually, on a study of bendamustine with or without GA101 in rituximab refractory patients. And that study's moving along nicely. What we saw last year, however, would give one pause for the future of the drug. Same thing holds for the expense and whatever, but there was a head-to-head -head comparison in which 
relapse refractory patients got rituximab or got GA101, and the response rates may have been slightly different, but if you saw the progression-free survival curves, it was the alpha helix. They just wove in and out of each other. Not encouraging enough. It could get approved on the basis of this trial I mentioned. If it does add to the bendamustine in rituximab refractory follicular lymphoma, but is it going to be used? I predict in a few years, we're not going to be having any conversations. Bendamustine is the only chemo drug out there actually in development in lymphomas. And if you're going to be getting results with idelalisib and rituximab that are not that dissimilar from bendamustine and rituximab, it's going to be tough to compete. It's funny because I don't think there's too many chemo agents being developed anywhere in cancer treatment. Right. The days of chemo are nearing an end, which is great for everybody except some of the pharmaceutical companies. So let's close out talking a little bit about Hodgkin lymphoma yeah. and talking about new things, pretty new things and different things. What about this paper, 798, looking at frontline therapy with brentuximab vidotin combined with ABVD or AVD? Yeah, this is an update of the Anas Yunus presentation where they took a number of patients. That's from last year. From last year. And there were 51 patients who were treated. They didn't listen to us. We did a study in CLGB Alliance of GVD, gemcitabine, venorobine, and liposomal docs which was a very effective, is a very effective relapse refractory regimen, and we added SGN30, which is the antibody backbone of SGN35 or brentuximab, and found life-threatening and fatal pulmonary toxicity. So we published that. Christy Bloom was the first author on that. We found some SNP correlations, but we warned people out there, be careful what you combine SGN30 antibodies with, because you can get yourself in trouble. Well, and that's what happened when they combined it with ABVD. There was pulmonary toxicity, interstitial lung disease, in 44% of patients. In the other cohort who just got AVD, that problem did not occur. So this study is the, and the response rates were spectacular. They looked at PET as a surrogate endpoint and 24 of 26 AVD patients were PET negative after two cycles. So it's a pretty good predictor of outcome in ABVD, and I would think it would be the same in AVD. But this study provides the justification for the company's multinational pivotal trial, which is ABVD versus A squared VD, doxorubicin, et cetera, VD, in previously untreated Hodgkin's. This is an extremely exciting, extremely important trial and is accruing. And this, again, could change how we manage patients. Now, if it were me, I'd get rid of the V because it's a tubulin poison, as is brentuximab. Why do you need two of them? You probably don't. So, you know, that's a next-generation question. But this really, again, you're taking out some chemotherapy and you're throwing in an antibody. I predict that the next thing you'll be getting rid of the blasting. You may be getting rid of something else, and we'll be using more biologically directed therapies up front and less cycles of chemotherapy. In terms of tubulin, what about peripheral neuropathy? Well, that's the big problem with this drug is sensory and motor neuropathy. 
it's usually at least partially reversible in the majority of patients, but it is the downside of the drug. So I'd rather not combine it with vinblasting because here you've got two neurotoxins together. So I think that would be the next step is getting rid of the V. What do we know right now about that regimen in terms of neurotoxicity? The AVD? Yeah. The A squared VD? Mm-hmm. Well, there has been neurotoxicity. The incidence of neuropathy in this study was about 70%, a little bit over, in both arms. And none of these were grade four or worse. Seven of the patients who received the A squared VD regimen had to discontinue brentuximab due to an adverse event. So neuropathy can be a problem. But if it really improves the outcome of patients and allows you to give fewer cycles, which would be my goal, then I think that you figure out how to manage it. This is a small number of patients. There's a lot of future for this drug, which will be fine-tuning it and decreasing the toxicity and whatever it takes to have it really make a major impact on Hodgkin's lymphoma in the frontline setting. How are you currently using bevacizumab right now in your own non-protocol management of Hodgkin? Well, we are using it according to the labeling indication, of course, but there are patients, which is patients who have failed a stem cell transplant or who aren't candidates for it. And we've seen major responses. We've had patients with Hodgkin's and with anaplastic large cell who were looking for transplant donors and couldn't find them, couldn't find them. We kept them in remission with this drug until donors were found. We actually had a very interesting, here's an anecdote. As my friend George Canellis would say, the plural of anecdote is not data. But this was a patient we actually had with nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's, not the classic. And this is one of the 5% that's CD30 positive. And this is a chap who had relapsed after ABVD and radiation therapy. And we gave him brentuximab instead of subjecting him to more chemo. After two doses, he was in a PET negative complete remission and remains there. I think we're still learning how to use this. I'd like to say I'm using it only by the labeling indication, but I'm using it where I think it's going to derive the best benefit for patients. And again, in that context, how much is neuropathy a practical problem? It depends on how much prior therapy they've had. We have had some patients who have had a lot of vinca alkaloids and some other neurotoxic kind of investigational drugs who have done very poorly. In general, you treat it like anybody who gets a vinca alkaloid. If it gets bad, you hold it for a while, you back down on the dose. And it hasn't been terrible. It's usually reversible, at least in the most part, and it's been mostly sensory more than motor. So the last paper I want to ask you about is the UK NCRI rapid trial looking at involved field radiotherapy in patients with stage 1A and 2A Hodgkin lymphoma. Right. The rapid trial was conducted by my good friend John Radford and his co-workers and Sally Barrington, who is a superb nuclear medicine pet person. Where we're going in Hodgkin's lymphoma is, since we cure so many of these patients, is we're trying to alter therapy in poor-risk patients or reduce the amount of therapy in good-risk patients. Here they took patients with early-stage Hodgkin's 
And it was a big study. It was over 600 patients. And it took them seven years almost to get this thing done. And they got three cycles of ABVD. They did not have PET scans before treatment because of expense considerations. And about three quarters were PET negative after the three cycles. Those patients were randomized to involved field radiation or no further therapy. The patients who were PET positive went on to get radiation. It was followed for almost four years at the time of presentation, 46 months, and over 91% of patients who were PET negative were progression-free, which is amazing considering here you're only using three cycles of therapy. And if you compare the results of the group that got involved field radiation versus those who got no further treatment, the results were non-inferior. It was 99.5% for no further therapy for progression-free survival, overall survival, excuse me, 99.5% for no further therapy versus 97% for patients who got involved field radiation. So here, we've not only limited the amount of treatment to three cycles of therapy for these patients, but we've been able to safely eliminate radiation, at least in this context. I'd like to see us do that in advanced stage patients with regimens like A squared VD, perhaps we can get down from six cycles to four cycles. How did we get six cycles anyhow? We got it because people like Gianna Bonadonna and Vince DeVita said, you will give six cycles of therapy. No one's challenged that. We know that eight's no better than six. Perhaps six is no better than four if you do it in a risk-adapted fashion. I think that's the future is getting rid of the number of cycles of chemotherapy until we can get rid of the chemotherapy altogether. So what about your approach outside of a trial setting in terms of involved field radiotherapy? Well, this is a very controversial topic right now. There was another study, the H10 trial, which was another one of these risk-adapted things, and they stopped it really early because it didn't seem that the group who didn't get radiated was doing as well. In my practice, for patients like this, although I'm sure it's going to change in the next year, I give them two cycles of ABVD. If they're PET negative, I give them two more. And that accounts for 75, 80% or more of patients. If they're PET positive, then I don't know what to do with them. And that's where we have a study ongoing, which is looking at that right now, which has about a dozen patients left to go to completion, where patients will either get two more, or if they're PET positive, will then be transitioned to escalated BACOP. The problem with that is the consequences of escalated BACOP. We have a regimen which is very active but very toxic with an increased risk of secondary malignancies. Wouldn't it be nice if we could give those patients brentuximab instead and get the same kind of result? That would be cool. That's what we need to look at. In terms of this question of whether to use involved radiotherapy, do you approach it differently in a younger woman who's going to have her breasts covered? No, because I rarely refer anybody for involved field radiation. If I did, I would clearly be reluctant to do it in women who have chest disease because the risk of breast cancer, which is not only unilateral, but is frequently bilateral in these women if they get the breast tissue irradiated. But I refer so few patients in my practice 
to radiation in this context. And a lot of women who, and this is a disease of young women with mediastinal disease, they come to us saying, can I avoid radiation? And if you look at, you know, we've talked in the past about the Canadian study where patients got chemo or chemo radio, but the radiation was subtotal nodal, which was more than we'd ever give anybody these days, and their survival, this was the Ralph Meyer study published last year in New England Journal, their survival with long-term follow-up was actually better in the chemo only than in the chemo radio arm because of a reduction in secondary malignancies, cardiac and pulmonary disease. However, we don't do that kind of radiation anymore. Will it be better with involved field or perhaps involved nodal? Presumably so, but we don't have long-term follow-up for the involved nodal radiation. There are some data from the German Hodgkin's group suggesting that involved field is every bit as good as more extensive radiation. But what about the involved nodal, and do we really need it at all? You know, here we are. We would be irradiating nine patients to maybe benefit one. 